I'm Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist. And this is a space for young people, families, and professionals who want to understand neurodiversity and mental illness better. I'm here to help you make sense of the most complex of issues in the simplest of ways. Let me walk you through topics that are important to you, from autism to trauma and from depression to self-harm. In this podcast, I'll bring you expertise, explain the science and equip you with practical tips and knowledge. Join me, Dr. Tagrid, your friendly child psychiatrist, for 30 minutes every Wednesday on all listening platforms. Hi, today we're talking about ADHD treatments. And as I was thinking about this episode and thinking about the privilege that we have having medications and having support and medical help here, I'm thinking about people in Palestine, people in Gaza who are not having that privilege and who are not able to access basic life support and basic help and medical assistance. I'm thinking about the long history of these people that I would recommend that people go and read about and read about the history of the Palestinian people and how this has become to be and think about the tragedy that has befallen this population in the past three months. My heart and thoughts are with them. Not that this matters, but it's all I have to give at the moment. Um, Let's go ahead and think about ADHD treatments today. And this episode is directed at people who have a diagnosis of ADHD. I recommend you go and listen to the ADHD episode where we talked about the difference between ADHD and other behavioral problems. And I'm going to do episodes in the future about the difference of ADHD and other things. Um, But today I'm going to focus on the treatment and we're going to think about ADHD medications. We're going to think about ADHD lifestyle and behavioral interventions. And we're going to think about novel treatments like diet stuff and neurofeedback. And we're going to think about why we recommend that ADHD gets treated. What's the point? I'm going to try and focus on children and young people. And I'm going to tip the hat to the difference between management in children, young people and adults. So let's have a crack at it. I'm going to start with medication because that's something that I want to get out of the way. And medication for ADHD is very simple. We've got four families of medication that we offer people with ADHD. And to make things really simple and be very honest with you is we don't know why ADHD happens. And we have a lot of theories, but we really don't know. And we don't know why medication helps it. We just really don't know. And it's very counterintuitive. So the first line of treating ADHD is using stimulants. So stimulants, like something that really makes you hyper, right? And why does this help a person with ADHD? It's counterintuitive. Shouldn't? We don't know. Why is it that if a person who doesn't have ADHD take these medications, they feel groggy, they feel zombified, and they don't feel any better? Why is that? We don't really know. So it looks like stimulants work for people who have ADHD and not for people who don't, to the extent that actually sometimes we do something called a trial therapy, where we just agree with the person that, you know what, we think it's ADHD, we're not sure, let's have a crack at it, let's take a stimulant medication and try and see if that helps. Because 
most of the time, if a stimulant works for a person, they likely have ADHD. And if they don't, if that doesn't work for the person, then actually we think about revising the formulation and revising the diagnosis. So that's how effective stimulant medications are for people who have ADHD. And there are bits of research out there about the effectiveness of stimulant medications being better for people who are more hyperactive than, than inattentive. And that's fair. But actually, in my practical experience, I haven't seen that to the extent that I would say, well, no, we're not giving you a stimulant medication or that is completely not working. Stimulant medications most of the time will work for both types of ADHD to a large degree. In my practice, if a stimulant medication doesn't work, then I actually rethink the diagnosis and rethink the formulation. Is there something else there? Is there another form of neurodiversity in the picture? Is there learning disability? Is there autism in the picture? Is this person actually, you know, suffering with ADHD? Is it something else? So, so stimulants work is my short and simple message to you out there. There are two forms of stimulants that we tend to use, something called methylphenidate. There are, you know, so many preparations of that. And there's something called listexamphetamine. And yes, you've heard that right, amphetamine from the 80s where people used to pop it and use it for weight loss. And it was a drug of choice for a lot of people, you know, in the crazy 80s. And yes, there is a possibility for substance abuse. And I'm going to crack that myth in a minute. What are the pros and cons of using uh, stimulant medications that have a risk of abuse for a population that actually have a high affinity for substance abuse? So that's a loaded question. Let's talk about it in a minute. But before we do that, I'm going to tell you that the first line of stimulant medication for children is actually methylphenidate. It looks like children and young people benefit better from methylphenidate. We don't know why. And adults seem to benefit more from listexamphetamine and dexamphetamine and that family of, of medications. Actually, we also don't know why, but those are the facts of life. So these two are interchangeable. If one doesn't work in all of its glorious preparations, we try the other and so on. And the second line is something called atomoxetine. Atomoxetine came out in the beginning with the idea that it was an antidepressant. But um, a lot of research is telling us now that it actually, it isn't an antidepressant, doesn't work like that for people. So um, there is no benefit for it being given for people who have depression and ADHD. So you can't really use it as an antidepressant. It is a good medication. There is some theory out there that it can be used for people who have an inattentive type ADHD and it's better for them. And there is theory that um, some, some people think it's good for ticks, some people think it's bad for ticks. There is a lot of controversial um, evidence around ADHD medication and ticks generally. So atomoxetine is a, an unhappy middle child. There's a lot of cultural difference between prescribers. Some people like it, some people don't. I used to practice in Egypt and in Egypt, there and in a lot of countries in the develop in the developing world, there is very little access to stimulant medications because it's not manufactured locally. So you're very dependent on the transport of the import of that of stimulant medications. So atomoxetine is a happy middle. 
even though it's not effective, not as effective as stimulant medications, but is more consistent and it's more present. And it's more easy to get because it's not a controlled drug. So theoretically, you can get your um, etamoxetine off your drugstore, your local chemist, with no difficulty, whereas you need to get a specialist uh, prescription for a controlled drug. So etamoxetine is a happy middle. And I'm going to tell you why it's not very loved in a minute, but let me tell you the fourth family of medications that are out there. And it's something called guanfacine or clonidine. It's a family of medications that actually in the beginning were anti-hypertensive medication. They used to give them for high blood pressure and actually they still do. They still use them for high blood pressure in some cases. And we don't know why they work for ADHD, but they do. And they do work for tics as well. Some prescribers will jump straight across this uh, hierarchy of medication to those um, medications for people who have ADHD and tics. Now, that's a personal choice for your prescribers. I don't do that in my practice. I go uh, through the hierarchy. And one day when we talk about tics, I'm going to tell you why. But going through the hierarchy is dependent on effectiveness. So it's it's in that order because stimulants are the most effective. Etamoxetine is second effective, second most effective, and guanfacine is then in the bottom. In a very shy manner, very bashfully, we have antipsychotics in the in the very end. For those very resistant cases where we have very resistant symptoms that don't respond to anything, sometimes we do prescribe antipsychotics. And the word antipsychotic should not confuse you because we use the term anti-something to describe mostly the, or- the origin of a medication. So an antipsychotic can be used for a lot of stuff apart from psychosis. It doesn't have to be psychosis. So sometimes we do use them, not specifically to address the symptoms of ADHD, but to address the behavioral challenges that come off of it and to address some of the emotional dysregulation that comes off of uh, ADHD. So sometimes we use it. I don't use it often in my practice. So that should tell you, I see a lot of people with ADHD. So that should tell you something about how often people use it. Not that often. Now let's talk about why methylphenidate is, um, or orlistic symphetamine. I can't say it most days, but why stimulants are so loved. Number one, they're the kind of medications that run out of your system the moment they run out of your system. So they're not going to be lingering somewhere in your system for your body to deal with. And this means that you take the pill, it works, you, you know, you excrete it after however many hours it's supposed to be in your body. Some are supposed to be there for four hours, some are supposed to be there for 12 hours. So you excrete it and that's the end of it. You take the pill, you, you know right away if it works or not, and you, you know, you poop it out and that's it. It's not lingering. And this means that its side effects also are not lingering. So it's a fair risk in terms of what you take because, you know, compared to other medications, so tamoxetine lingers in your system and you have to wait for a buildup to see effectiveness. And so does guanfacine. And those two medications need a lot of monitoring as well because of their other side effects. Whereas stimulant medications, you really just take the pill on the day and that's it. Yes, we monitor. Yes, we screen. But actually, a lot of people use their medications in a way that is um, to soothe their life. So they have a lot of drug holidays where they take it like five days a week and then they take two days off or 
you know, shift workers will take it on days where um, they need to sit down for admin and will skip it on days where they actually need to be a little bit hyper. There is a way around stimulants where people can work it into their lifestyle. So we really love stimulants. And on the tin, there are a lot of side effects and there's a lot of monitoring that goes into stimulants. So you'll hear something about monitoring your blood pressure and your heart rate. And that's because of the worry about these stimulants increasing your heart rate and having an impact on your blood pressure and having an impact on your cardiovascular health. And there is research coming out about the impact of these medications on the longer run on your um, cardiovascular health. And it's very equivalent to consuming any other stimulant in your life to a large extent. So you have to, or your prescriber will have to think with you around the risk and benefit around this. Now. When do we choose to treat ADHD is when we think about that risk and benefit balance. So again, this is a conversation that I have a lot with people is you actually have a choice not to treat ADHD, but what is the cost on the other hand? ADHD is not one size fit all. It is a spectrum of severity. So some people have very mild ADHD where they can cope with that with some behavioral lifestyle changes and some will really, really struggle to put these in place, which will mean that ADHD will impact their life quite significantly. It will impact their work. It will impact their schooling. It will impact their um, personal relationships. It will impact their mood. People who have ADHD are more likely to develop substance abuse problems because, I mean, there is research that suggests that people tend to self-medicate, tend to use alcohol or downers to kind of balance a little bit and bring themselves down when they're a bit hyper and use stimulants to kind of get that stability and groundedness. So it looks like people who have ADHD are more likely to self-medicate with, um, with substances. People with ADHD are more impulsive, so they can put themselves in really risky situations. They can end up with more tickets, speeding tickets. They can end up with more difficulties with the law. They could end up with a lot of problems around relationships. The people who have ADHD also struggle with regulation. So it's not, um, so it's, it's very linked with the part of the brain that is underdeveloped, we think, is, is the part that also manages your emotions or regulates your emotions, stops you from going completely over the top in reaction to a situation or getting too angry or getting too sad. And therefore, people who have ADHD can be more likely to have a temper problem or anger management issues and more likely to develop uh, depression or anxiety or other forms of mental health. And so we think with people around that risk as well, around how are we going to manage that risk. The other thing is to think about functioning. So, you know, in a previous episode, when you talked about disability, my colleague who I spoke to at the time mentioned social model of disability. Sometimes the world is not set up to accommodate a person's build. So let's say a person with a certain severity of ADHD can function really well in a high speed environment. So they're very good as an A&E nurse. They're very good as a police officer. You know, they're very used to that um, very fast pace of work. They're very good thinking on their feet. They're very good at uh, shifting their attention from one thing to another, very good at multitasking. They can manage their impulsivity to a degree where they don't get themselves in trouble. 
They can manage their emotions to a degree where they don't get themselves in trouble and they can manage. So those people in those situations have built a life around how they are naturally built around their ADHD. So their life accommodates their, um, their ADHD. But if you're looking at a child who's supposed to perform in a standardized, a standardized testing, who's supposed to be at school, who's supposed to perform at school, who's supposed to manage all of these things, you need to think about, okay, I need to enable them and I need to manage these symptoms in order to help them with school. And for this group of people where they can, they can manage outside of school, but they struggle in school, sometimes we think about just using medication during term time or during school days. Now, the other thing is to think about is ADHD in the developing brain. Now, the theory around how ADHD happens is that it is a developmental problem, right? So it's a part of your brain that's supposed to regulate your attention, supposed to regulate your impulse control, supposed to regulate your activity levels, supposed to regulate your emotions, and it just is not developing as fast and as well as the rest of your brain. So if you help it, you're not only helping it right now, you're also possibly helping it develop sooner, helping it catch up with the rest of the brain. So altering the trajectory of the development of this young person or this child. And this can explain the numbers where we see that a large proportion, almost a third of the people who will have treatment, who will have medication for ADHD, will grow out of ADHD and will get completely better. And that's, you know, is this because people who have medication or who get help for ADHD are being supported into developing normally? If we leave this group alone, are they going to completely grow out of ADHD? Some research suggests so. And there is a group of people that will not grow out of ADHD and will continue to need help, need medication for the rest of their lives. And there is a group that will need less medication, less help. They will have less symptoms for the rest of their lives. So is altering, and that's something that we think about, is altering the trajectory for this group of people good? Is it worth it? And there is no hard answer. Right. And there is no one answer fits all. It depends on the young person. It depends on the situation. Sometimes I see young people and I tell them, you know what, you can take it or leave it. I think you have ADHD. It might help you, but you can take it or leave it. It looks like you're managing your life all right. But it's important for you to understand, you know, something about yourself. But sometimes I do strongly advise people. And I think, you know what, if I definitely strongly recommend the medication. If I were in your shoes, I would definitely um, get the medication for my child. I'd definitely take the medication. And, and I think it's really important to think about the personal situation and the personal risks and the family history and the environment around the child and the environment around the adult and the environment around the person. So it's not, we don't put, you know, uh, blinders on and just look at the ADHD. We don't treat the condition. We look at the entire situation. We treat the person. So this is my, my, my two cents worth on medication and why 
and what we think about when we come to, to treating ADHD. The other thing is that I, a lot of people who have ADHD will present with something else as well. So a lot of people, a lot of young people who come with ADHD will also have depression or will have anxiety on top or will have sleep problems or will have trauma on the background as well. And I'm, the trauma and ADHD is a whole thing that we're going to talk about one day. But sometimes it's really difficult for this group of people to actually engage with therapeutic interventions that are aimed at these mental illnesses because they just cannot sit down. They cannot regulate their emotions. They cannot regulate their attention. They can't engage meaningfully in therapy because the ADHD is all over the place. And sometimes it's helpful to treat the ADHD, get us to a place where actually this person can sit down and handle EMDR or CBT or handle some kind of, of therapy to help them. So sometimes treating the ADHD at the beginning not only can by itself improve you know, mental illness symptoms and help this person get their lives together and feel better, but also sometimes it helps them engage meaningfully in therapeutic interventions. Now, there is a group of people, and I have to say this disclaimer, that there is a group of people where ADHD medication will not work, you know. And there is a group of people where ADHD medication will make things worse. People who have ADHD and other kind of neurodiversity tend to react in weird and wonderful ways to, to medications. So I've seen people react to ADHD medications with all sorts of things, with headaches, with um, getting more angry, getting more um, impulsive. So it, it, it really depends on the situation. It really depends on who you are. You're more likely to react in a, in a weird way to ADHD medication if you have another neurodiversity, particularly a severe one. So people with severe ASD or severe LD will react in a weird way to ADHD medications. But ADHD medications are really a controversial topic. I don't think they're that controversial or that risky. There is no evidence to tell us that they're more risky or more dangerous than any other medication out there that's being offered to people. I don't know why it's controversial because it, maybe because we don't know how it works, you know, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you why you think it's controversial, but what do we really know about a lot of medications? There's a lot of stuff that we're still learning about and there's a lot of research out there about medications that we're still understanding how they work. You know, we didn't understand how clozapine worked uh, for so many years. We, you know, we barely understand a lot of, of, of the medications that are, are, are used out there. So I really don't know why ADHD medications are controversial. Now, I want to tell you about behavioral interventions. And I talked a little bit about how people can build their lives around ADHD. Now, there are things that are known to help. Now, the research around these behavioral interventions is in no way as good as on medication. And we can argue that this has to be with the pharmaceutical lobby, maybe. But it's probably because people tend to fall out of commitment with behavioral interventions more likely than they fall out of commitment with medication that they pay for or they have to get from a prescriber. So maybe it has to do with uh, compliance. I don't know. But behavioral interventions help, but they don't tend to help all the way. They don't tend to target the core symptoms of ADHD. So they don't tend to improve your attention span um, meaningfully or improve your ability to regulate meaningfully and not on the long term, but they do definitely help. 
So things like building your life around it, so finding a job or managing school in a way that helps. So for example, interventions that can help can be chunking. So chunking times instead of sitting down in a class or at your desk for um, 40 minutes, you're going to take a few, you're going to time yourself. You're going to see that, okay, my best attention is between uh, five and 10 minutes and I'm going to take a break, take a walk, walk around the block, do something and bring myself back. So actually take yourself away, give yourself that break and come back. Some people use, um, some people find it helpful to use sensory stuff. So, you know, fidget toys that are out there, it's sometimes it's helpful to occupy your hands, occupy yourself in a sensory way, listen to music, listen to something while you're performing a task. And that seems to help regulate your attention a little bit. The other thing is to be aware of your attention span. So be aware that you will hyperfocus at times, you will be less attentive at times and manage your tasks around your um, your attention um, wavelength. And the other thing is around activity levels. So people who have ADHD struggle to regulate their activity. They just can't sit down. And the idea is to find a, a world where that is helpful. So get more involved with sports, get more involved with tasks that need you to walk around the school, become that school, you know, hallway monitor, do all of these tasks for your teacher, keep walking around the school, doing things, get involved in something, ask the teachers to help your child use those skills for, um, for something useful and productive rather than have it, you know, present as a child who's fidgeting or getting out of their seat meaninglessly all the time. And if you're a grown-up, get a job that finds that helpful. Don't get a sit-down job. Get something that allows you to be walking around doing something. Sales is always a good thing to do when you're someone with ADHD because it requires you to be on your feet. It requires you to be, you know, quick. And, and, and then, yes, you're going to struggle for admin days. But then if you manage your attention span in a way that is, that is more suited for you, then you can manage. And I think working with schools for young people is very important when it comes to thinking about how not only the environment can be suited for the child, but also the teaching methods. So trying to get that child in a place where they can engage. So sit them in a front row, get them involved in the class in a way that's exciting, give them tasks, send them out when you feel like they're drifting away and bring them back. Check with them regularly what they're getting. So don't leave them, you know, to their own devices to zone out or daydream. And the most important thing, do not label them. Because what I see day in and day out is children with ADHD, you know, messing up and they do mess up. People with ADHD do mess up a lot because they are very impulsive. So yes, this child will mess up. They'll do something out of turn and they're going to get labeled as the bad child. And they're going to, people are going to be on them like hawks. And it's very disheartening for the child. If you're being told all the time that you're bad at this, you're bad at school, you're bad at being here, you're not going to put in the effort. You're going to be disheartened. You're not going to be wanting to go to school. And in this population, by the time these kids are coming in for an ADHD diagnosis, school is completely broken down. Their trust in school has completely broken down. By that time, they feel so unwanted and rejected by their teachers that they don't want to try anymore. So getting that understanding and avoiding that labeling is really important. Psychoeducation for people is very important. 
talking to teachers about ADHD, even if your child hasn't got a diagnosis yet, talking to them about the possibility that this is ADHD, talking to them about what it means and, and, and how we can manage between home and school to help this child feel important and feel wanted and feel like they're doing okay is very important. Now, the third thing to think about with children is parenting. Now, you're going to hear about parenting programs and parent training is something that comes up a lot and people can get offended about it because it makes you feel like you're doing something wrong and that's why your child is ill. Now, I'll tell you, parent training is not about that at all. So there is 101 parenting programs and parenting classes out there. Different ones, there's one, two, three, um, magic. There is positive, the triple P positive parenting program. There's a few ones out there. Um, and what I can tell you is whatever it is, it's worth it because whatever it is, it will work because all of them are trying to do one single thing is help you be more conscious of your child's specific needs and how your behavior can change the outcome in a parenting interaction. So it's all about that, that consciousness. There is no right or wrong answer when it comes to parenting. There is no bad parent. There is no one is getting this parenting thing right, you know, from the, from the get-go. And there is no parenting Bible. There is no one way that we standardize for parenting. Oh, if you parent your children this way, your parent is going to be, a, your child is going to be perfect or your child is going to be cured forever. There is nothing, you know, like that. But there are main principles for parenting techniques that work for people with ADHD. Number one is being conscious of your behavior. Number two is being consistent. Number three is being boundaried. And being boundaried is not equivalent to being mean or being strict. Being boundaried means that, you know, you have to create a world where your child knows what to expect. So if I comply with this rule, which is a reasonable rule and is a rule that is meant to suit them. So for example, a child who cannot sit down for, you know, 30 minutes, cannot be expected to sit down and do homework for 30 minutes. You're going to have to make that more reasonable for them. So if you sit down for 10 minutes on doing your homework, you're going to get this kind of reward. If you speak out of turn to your parent or you speak in a certain way that's disrespectful to a peer or, you know, get in that kind of impulsive trouble, then there will be that kind of consequence. And we're going to have to sit down and talk about it with respect. And I think about what can be done differently, but there will be a, a consequence at the end of it. So children need a level of predictability and certainty. What I hear sometimes is this child wants for nothing. I always say yes to everything. They just wear me down and I cannot, you know, fight them. And it's very hard. It is a very hard situation. And sometimes getting into that kind of parenting training can give you the tools to manage these situations because they are impossible. You know, you are a parent with a job, with a life, and with, in a lot of families, multiple children and multiple responsibilities. You don't have the energy to fight this over and over and try and put these boundaries in. And these programs are helpful because they give you these tools and help you think on your feet in those situations. So it, it reduces a little bit your mental effort that you need to put in to help your child and to make your parenting more accessible to them. So parenting training is important. And the last thing I want to talk about is the 
the self-training things, and this will take us smoothly into the novel ones. Now, the self-training thing that I talked about, there are things that I talked about earlier about chunking and about managing um, your activity using fidgets and things, but there are lovely self-training resources out there that talk about how you can just keep an eye on your strengths and weaknesses. So what is your strength point around your attention and what are your what are your weaknesses around your attention? What are your strengths points in your activity? What are your weaknesses around that? And yada, yada. So it helps you think about your strengths and weaknesses and think about what are the meaningful, what are the uh, achievable goals that you want? So, for example, you have to do um, admin, right, for 20 minutes a week. Is that doable? No, I drift away after 10 minutes. So maybe try and make it and build it up where I can, I need to sit down for, try and build it up where I need to sit down for 10 minutes. I increase it by five, I increase it slowly and slowly and build things to enable me to to increase it. So use a stand-up desk, walk around while I do this part of the job or do it, you know, more, do more dictation, do more, um, do more admin in a different way. And it, it talks about training yourself and trying to improve your capacity to pay attention and sit still and to think before you make decisions, but also to build your world in a way that makes it easier for you to do these things. Now, while we're talking about self-training, there's something called neurofeedback out there, which is a very similar form of, of training, but with the assistance of um, actually looking at your brainwaves in action. It's really cool and expensive, really expensive. And the evidence around it is quite the same with behavioral interventions. It's not very long lived because you finish the program and then you're very tempted to go back to your old ways. But the idea is it helps you see visually how your brain changes when you change these behaviors. And that probably will make it easier for you to control these behaviors and in a way control these brainwaves. It's pretty cool. I'm telling you, very sci-fi, but it's also very expensive. Now, there are things around diet and restricting certain diets, getting certain things in your diet. There is no evidence for that stuff. And the absence of evidence, I know better than to tell you, you know, no evidence means it's, it's rubbish because, you know, the absence of evidence doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it just means maybe we, we don't know how to approach this. Now, the more consistent ones that I, I'm hearing is e-numbers and sugar. And I'm not going to be the person who tells you, of course, eat more packaged foods and preservatives and white sugar because, you know, why would you? If it, it's a really, we don't know how ADHD works, really. So if you feel that there is something that is helpful for your child or for yourself, you know, by all means, try it out, restrict it or add it. What I would say is don't restrict major food groups, please. You know, try not to affect your physical health in the process of trying out something. If something doesn't make sense, don't do it, is my uh, rule of thumb. And um, try to make sure that if you're looking after a child is to get them all of the healthy stuff that they need. Try not to take supplements that are not backed in science, that are not known for the national formulary, they have, that have not been approved by the FDA, that have not been researched well enough. So I hear a lot about all sorts of 
of um, omega-3 and all of that stuff. Of course, by all means, if you, you know, you want to take some supplements, some vitamins, that's fine. But there is no evidence to suggest that this stuff really addresses the core symptoms. So take it with care and make sure that it doesn't affect your physical health in a negative way. And I think today we talked about a lot of stuff. We talked about why we treat ADHD and how we think about treating ADHD. We talked about medication, we talked about behavioral interventions, and we talked about novel treatments. And I'm curious to hear people's opinions about this. So please go on the Instagram page or go on the Facebook page and tell us what you think about this episode, because I know that this is such a controversial topic. And thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes for helpful resources and support. If you enjoyed listening, subscribe to our channel and get notified about the latest episodes. This is Dr. Tagrid, wishing you well.